Hi everyone, Luke Parker again, welcoming you to another Bible study. We want to learn, we want to live, we want to love like Jesus, even in really difficult times. And that's why we are reading the Psalms together and having this Bible study from a distance, discipling from a distance, because we want to keep following Jesus, whether we're in season or out of season in the language of Timothy. So turn with me to Psalm 80. Read along in your English Bible. It might be a little different from mine, but that'll just help you to see uh, the choices your translators made. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might. Come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why, then, have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. All that moves in the field feed on it. Turn again. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us. O Lord, God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And that is our prayer today. Well, you may have noticed that the tone of this psalm is a little different than the one we read last week. It spends a lot of time telling God what to do. Listen up, God. Shine forth. Stir up your might. Come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. Restore us, O God, let your face shine. He says that a few times. Turn again, look down from heaven and see. Are you not paying attention? Have regard for this vine. Give us life. Restore us. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. And it may surprise you that the Bible has prayers like this in it. Because maybe you grew up in a church that wouldn't be okay with praying like this. I would say that it's kind of inappropriate to talk to God like this. It implies that you don't trust him. Or maybe that you think you're in control of the situation. It's impertinent to talk to the God of the universe in this way. And that might be true in other religions. 
But our Bible has 150 psalms with prayers that sound like this. And prayers that sound like this are called laments. And we would say it's not inappropriate to pray to God like this. In fact, it's a sign that you really trust God when you tell him exactly how you feel. It's even a sign that you trust God when you say, I'm having trouble trusting you right now. I'm really angry with you right now. I don't understand what you're doing and I don't like what you're doing. That those are actually profound statements of trust because you're still talking to God. You still believe that he's listening. And it implies that your hope, no matter how small, is still that God will answer your prayers. That he will shine forth. There are lots of psalms like this. And this may seem spicy to you, but as laments go, it's not nearly the spiciest one that we have. Lots of the psalms are really okay with telling God that we are in trouble. Eugene Peterson, in his book on the Psalms, says that the language is personal, direct, desperate. This is the language of prayer. Men and women calling out their trouble, pain, guilt, doubt, despair to God. Their lives are threatened. If they don't get help, they will be dead or diminished to some critical degree. The language of prayer is forged in the crucible of trouble. Language of prayer occurs primarily at one level, the personal, and for one purpose, salvation. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. Those who don't know that they are in trouble are in the worst trouble. Prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and know it, and who believe or hope that God can get them out. Do you believe or hope that God can get you out of the trouble that you're in today? Then this is a prayer for you. It's also a prayer for some other people. Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. Who are these people? I might go through quickly here, but feel free to pause or go back to read things. Well, we know that they are related to Abraham. They're actually some of his children and great-grandchildren, part of the tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, we actually hear Israel, whose name is also Jacob, stretching out his right hand and putting it on the head of Ephraim and Manasseh, that he blesses Joseph by blessing his children, Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, the God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, bless these boys. He says, someday Israel, the nation, will bless one another saying, God make you like Ephraim. God make you like Manasseh. And then he explicitly blesses, blesses Joseph. He says he is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine with plenty of water. His branches are running over the wall, outside of the boundaries. People attack him. They're against him. But the hands of the mighty one of Jacob 
the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the God of your father, is with you. He will help you. He will bless you with the blessings of heaven above. You might notice the language of our psalm, which isn't surprising. As you can imagine, that these sorts of words would be easy to remember, that you'd hang on to them when times were tough, especially. And times could get tough indeed. Here are the boundaries of the tribes of Israel, Manasseh, Ephraim, Benjamin, Judah. You can see how they go from the Mediterranean to the river. You can see of Galilee up here, the Dead Sea down here. This is an expanded view, Egypt over here. This is what the nation of Israel looked like with its neighbors slash enemies surrounding them. Until just after the death of Solomon, when the tribes have a civil war. And the northern tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, break away from the southern tribe, Judah. For the rest of the Bible, they're called Israel, or sometimes Joseph, or sometimes Ephraim. Because they don't trust this king down south and his god. So they start their own king, and they have their own gods. And prophet after prophet comes to warn them. But they don't listen, and eventually they are wiped off the map. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes in and crushes the northern tribes, but spares Judah. The Bible says it's because God was with them. And the northerners who have been in trouble for a long time, suddenly realize that they were in desperate need of God. Suddenly, they experience the shift that Eugene Peterson talks about, and they start to pray. That's what this psalm is, a prayer. How long, O oh Lord? A key phrase in the Psalms of Lament. How long? Will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. We have eaten. We have drunk. We are full. Enough is enough, God. We are the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. How long? Restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This word for anger here. It's actually just the word for smoke. God is literally fuming with his people. There's sort of a play on words, or at least a play on ideas here, because the people of Israel prayed with smoke. This is a painting of David and the high priest before the ark of God. They're offering incense as prayer. Sometimes, of course, they would light animals on fire as sacrifices, and the smoke would rise up to God. And so the play on words goes something like this. God, we keep praying to you. We keep offering the smoke of incense and sacrifice, and all we're getting from you is smoke. We want your presence to shine forth, to be bright and visible. We need your tangible presence, Lord. The smoke would go over these angels on top of the ark called cherubim. This is a modern recreation of the ark. And it would come over the ark, and right here, this was called the, the atonement seat, literally, in Hebrew. But Luther calls it the mercy seat in his translation, and we've liked that ever since. The Ark of the Covenant actually was found in the Middle East some years ago. 
by an archaeologist named Dr. Henry Jones Jr. and his father. There's a documentary that you can see on Hulu or Netflix, I can't remember, but it's called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can learn all about it. This place between the two cherubim is called the Mercy Seat. It's a place where we go to find our sins forgiven, a place where we go to find the presence of God. In Exodus, you see how often the phrase occurs as they describe the art. This is the Mercy Seat. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we hear we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Again, this seat where God sits. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness, not with the smoke or the blood of animals, but with Christ, the high priest of the good things that have come, who comes with his own blood, his own life, the mediator of a brand new kind of covenant. So, when the psalmist says, turn again, how long? He doesn't base this on some righteous act of the people of Israel. We've learned our lesson, God, we're sorry, please forgive us. No, he bases it on the act of God in the past. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, it filled the land. Mountains were covered with its shade. That's how big it got. Cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea. It shoots to the river. So why? The second question of our psalm. Why, then, have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way can pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it. All that move in the field feed on it. God, you saved us in the first place. Why aren't you saving us now? The psalmist is counting on the fact that God loves mercy. In the words of Pope Francis, that the name of God is mercy. And that he won't be able to stand it. If God were to turn to look down from heaven and see, he wouldn't be able to help himself. He would save us. He would see that they've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. And God's presence would be tangible. He would save his people. We have that same confidence. But the image of the vine is an interesting one. Uh, There's some vines in my garden right now. These are snap peas that I've been growing. I cleared the ground for them. I put in water for them. I built a trellis so they would grow because I want fruit from them. I want them to be happy and to grow. But this is another vine. It's one that's just growing in my yard. I didn't mean to plant it. The seed fell and the flood irrigation has taken care of it. It's gotten kind of big, actually. But it's in real danger because it isn't walled around and there's no trellis and no one's intentionally taking care of it. And I may not have wild boars in my yard, but I do have a four-year-old a two-year-old, a black lab, and they have a lot of toys, and my wife doesn't always pay attention where she's walking, and so this vine is in real danger without my presence. Unless I come and defend it and care for it, what hope could it possibly have? The psalmist says that you and I are like a vine 
in desperate need of the presence of God. There's a word that's been repeating all throughout this passage in Hebrew. It's hard to see in English, and there's no reason for that really, except that it's just hard to bring consistently into English. Uh, but it's the word lifne in Hebrew. It's a word for presence or for the face of God, or for being in front of or before someone. And so literally, verse 1 could say something like, You who are enthroned on the cherubim shine forth in the presence of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Let your presence shine that we may be saved. Let your presence shine that we may be saved. You cleared the ground for the presence of the vine. We pray that our enemies would experience your presence. Because we know that your presence brokes no opposition. That you will accept no enemies. So we ask that your presence would shine. Because we know that when it does, we will be saved. These words might remind you of something we say at the end of every worship service. It's the same word for presence here as well. There's something that's missing in the translation of Scripture I read. Down at verse 17, you can see it. It says, Let your hand be upon the one at your right hand the one you made strong for yourself. And in Hebrew, the verses are a little different, so it's going to be verse 18. In Hebrew, you can see this phrase, Ben Adam, which the NIV translates, I think, a little bit better, the son of man. My translation just goes with the one. And again, there's a bit of a play on words in Hebrew, because the name Benjamin, Ben Yamin, means son of the right hand. But here he's talking about the Ben Adam, the son of man. And you can imagine how the early church heard this particular verse. Something about the Messiah. Something about Jesus and his presence. John Calvin actually says that this phrase is clearly about the king of Israel. Clearly, the northern tribes have learned their lesson, have understood that God wants them to be one united people following the one God. But I have no hesitation, Calvin says, in applying this to the whole of the church, because this is clearly about Jesus Christ. The psalmist doesn't actually know what we know about God, that he's more merciful than you could ever have imagined. More gracious than we ever could have imagined, that his presence is more tangibly with us than we ever could have imagined. And so when we ask that God's hand would be with his people again, we know that that hand bore the nails of the cross for us. That this isn't just some metaphor about God, but that God took on flesh for you and me. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear that Jesus' name literally means salvation. Yesha in Hebrew means salvation, and Yeshua is the name of Jesus. Jesus actually calls himself the Good Shepherd and the True Vine. In the Old Testament, the 
consistent image for God is the shepherd, and the consistent image for the people of Israel, or at least one of them, is a vine. God is not the vine, and the people are not the shepherd. And yet Jesus unites both images. Because in Jesus Christ, we have true God, and in Jesus Christ, we have true man, the real human being, God in the flesh. And so we can trust that when we cry out to the shepherd of Israel, we're also talking to someone who knows what it's like to be a vulnerable vine, crying out to God. And then we speak of the vine that God's right hand planted. We know that we're not just talking about some wise human being in Jesus, but the very God of the universe who is closer to us than our own breath, the good shepherd and the vine of Israel. Now, this is a 16th century icon, an image from Greece. It shows Christ as the true vine and the apostles as branches. If you remember the rest of John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me, who stay intimately connected to my presence, will bear much fruit. We want to be fruitful people. And we want to be intimately connected to the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we pray with the psalmist. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved because we know that the presence of God is what we really need, that in his presence we find fullness of joy, that in the presence of Jesus Christ, when we abide in him, we find fruitfulness, we find eternal life. And sometimes we get distracted from that. We get comfortable in the way we've been doing things, and some crisis shakes us up scares us and pushes us to go seeking the face of God. And that may be what's happening for you right now. Remember Eugene Peterson said that we're in trouble most of the time. It's just some people don't realize it, which is actually the worst kind of trouble. Prayer is the language of people who know they're in trouble and who believe or hope that God can get them out. The psalmist keeps praying this same phrase again and again and again through the psalm. But it grows a little bit each time, as though he's remembering a little bit more about who God is. At first he's just God, the generic name for a deity, but then he's the God of hosts. We remember that God isn't just some abstract God far away, but he's a God with real power. Not just an idea, but a God who shows up and can act decisively in history. That he's done so before. That he can deal with the things that threaten us. And then, in the end, he adds the name of God. Which most English translations just bring across as the Lord. It's Yahweh in Hebrew. God's name. Which is a precious thing to the people of Israel and a precious thing to the church. 
that we know the name of God. That he's not just some God somewhere, but he's our God. The God that we have come to know in Jesus Christ, that we know God's name, means that when we cry out to him, he listens. And we remember that God knows our name, that he made us, that he saved us so very long ago on the cross. And that if he loved us enough to do that, that he will continue to save us. And that we can place our hope in him because he has proven decisively just how much he cares for us. We know what the face of God looks like. Jesus Christ. And we know that when we look into his face, we find salvation. We know that when we come into his presence, we will be saved. The frustrating thing about the Psalms for some of us is that they don't always end with a sense of resolution. There's not always an ending or even a happy ending. But for some of us, that's a great comfort. Because sometimes we're kind of in the middle of a crisis, crying out to God over and over and over again. And it's nice to know that that's okay. That we can use these words, and I would encourage you to use these words as we pray, that we can just repeat this simple prayer over and over and over again. Trusting that God is listening. Believing or hoping over and over and over again because we're in trouble and we know it and we believe, we hope that God can get us out. And so we are longing for his presence today, crying out that we might see his face and the salvation that comes with it. Well, friends, that's our Bible study for today. And I'd encourage you to take that last phrase that repeats throughout the psalm and mix it into your prayers. Just to continue to say, restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Make that your way of abiding in him this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace from this day forward and evermore.